This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to talk about everything here on this show, from business to history, from sports to the arts, and your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll take a listen, we'll put it together, produce it, and you'll be hearing your stories, your own stories, on the air. They're some of our favorites. The American people can write and talk, and my goodness, what stories you've already given us. What's coming up next is an intersection of two of our favorite subjects, innovation and music. And you're about to hear the story of the multi-track recording. It spawned an epic rivalry between the Beach Boys and the Beatles. Change music as we know it. Here's Greg Hengler with the rest of the story. I, I love the colorful clothes you wear And the way the sunlight plays upon her hair In the 60s, multi-track recording began to redefine what music could be and turn the studio into a sonic laboratory. I'm picking up vibrations. Here's Ringo Starr. It was like a strange place full of like crazy scientists, electricians, madmen. Here's music producer Don Was. Just having the time to experiment in the studio was a radical change. 90 hours working on one song. Everyone thought that was insanity. Here's music historian Chuck Granada and the founder of the band Boston, Tom Scholes. I woke up this morning and the sun was gone. Turned on some music to start my day. In 1976, a band named Boston had a hit single called More Than a Feeling. What no one knew was that Boston really wasn't a band at all. Boston was the result of me tinkering in a basement with my multi-track recording studio. It was a, a really personal endeavor. I work in my own space, my own time, put a rhythm guitar part on, and then another one, and then a bass track, keyboards. Then I uh, called Brad Delp to see if he wanted to sing the vocals, which thankfully he did. So I basically threw a band together to be able to play the songs live. Not only didn't the record company uh, not only were they not aware that I was making a record in my basement, but they never became aware that the record that they were selling millions of copies of was made in a basement. Multitracking allowed you to put music together and change it. And the reason it was cool is because this gave you a, basically a whole new medium. At one point, someone explained to me, older than I was, that this whole process of recording on uh, multi-track recorders was invented by this guy, Les Paul. And I said, well, what a coincidence. There's a guitar that, that's named a Les Paul. And he says, yeah, there's a good reason for that. Les Paul not only designed some guitars that made new and incredible sounds, but had this vision for recording studios. He invented multi-track recording. I mean, that, that, that changed everything. Here 
Here's Eric Clapton. The records I heard by Les Paul and Mary Ford in the 50s, I was even aware then that without any knowledge of, um, of recording techniques that they were doing something revolutionary. Uh, we turn the tape machines on. They're just a standard, regular uh, Ampex tape machine. Mm -hmm. As I recall, there are uh, about a dozen or 20 voices come in there. Now, where, who's the voices? That's Mary. You mean they're all Mary's voices? Mm -hmm. Somewhere there's music, how faint the tune. Somewhere there's heaven, how high the moon. Now yeah. I'll add a tenor part to that. All right. Wait a minute. Somewhere there's music, how faint the tune. Somewhere there's heaven, how high the moon. Well, how long can this go on without getting awful confused in your head? <laughs> it's being, pretty confused. Being cued by your husband. <laughs> well, uh, would you like to hear the third part? Yes. Somewhere there's music, how faint the tune. Somewhere there's heaven. Here's Jeff Beck. Les Paul, I mean, he made sounds no one had ever heard before. I remember my mum saying, you shouldn't listen to this music, it's fake. She said, it's one guy tricking us. So I said, that's it, that's, me. that's the music for me. <laughs> because it was enabled me to be rebellious, you know, as well. And I enjoyed the sound. I don't think you can beat that. I mean, the way that those records sound is it's still exciting. Before Magnetic Tape, an artist would come into the studio and they would be recorded live. What they would do is literally etch the grooves into the disc as the session was being recorded. You had to start from the beginning and go to the end. If you made any mistakes, too bad, or you had to start over. Magnetic Tape, it just changed music completely. It gave you the possibility to record in fidelity that was better than anyone had ever even come close to, so you could make a more accurate document. At the same time, it lets you manipulate sound so it didn't sound lifelike at all because now you could edit, you could overdub, you could cut and splice. Once the technology came out, it very quickly became the standard format. And when we come back, we continue this remarkable story, this tale of innovation and music and competition. Competition is a vital part of this story. The story of the multi-track recording continues here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the multi-track music revolution. And by the way, I'm a huge music fan, and there's some stuff. Well, I'm just writing down notes to myself, and I'm going to be going back to listen to some of my favorite records now and listen a whole lot differently. Let's return to this story and to Greg Hengler. Okay, wouldn't it be nice take five? Recalling his 1960s game of one-upmanship with the Beach Boys' so-called rivals, the Beatles, Brian Wilson said, Rubber Soul inspired pet sounds, which inspired Sgt. Pepper's. Here's music producer Don Was and music historian Chuck Granato. I think the kind of friendly competition between the Beatles and the Beach Boys really advanced the cause of popular music. Brian Wilson heard Rubber Soul and understood that there was a whole other place where you could take rock and roll. That that, that was an elevated musical consciousness at play. Brian was listening to what the Beatles were doing in the studio and he was completely knocked out. Hearing that made him realize that he had to up the ante on his next album, which was Pet Sounds. No, it's gonna make it that much better when we can say goodnight and stay told me that he and Carl used to pray before each session that they would make a record that would be warmer and more inspirational than Rubber Soul. None of those big pickups, blah, 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 just, uh, just like, uh, do-do-do-do. Brian pre-imagined everything that he did. He heard all of the vocal parts, all of the instrumental parts, even before anyone set foot in the studio. Brian was the mastermind. I'd like to start it out now, this time, with the uh, organ and the Fender bass. And then uh, the bongos will come in the second half like everything else. All right, here we go. Ironically, the only song from the Pet Sound Sessions that reached number one was recorded after the album was released. And it was the result of an unprecedented number of hours in the studio. Here's Glenn Campbell. Time was nothing to Brian Wilson. I remember we all got to sit there for about three and a half hours when he was running his finger up that thing going. I'm picking up vibrations. She's giving me the excitations. I'm picking up vibrations. She's giving me Just having the time to experiment in the studio was a radical change. When he made good vibrations, Brian reportedly spent 90 hours recording it. Everyone thought that was insanity, you know, like he's gone mad. He spent 90 hours working on one song. You know, I mean, today, that's nothing. Here's Beach Boys drummer Hal Blaine and bassist Carol Kay. The session that we did on Good Vibrations was not one session. It was many, many, many sessions. Take after take after take. My fingers were almost bleeding, you know, it's like, come on, Brian. Fade us out, fade us out. I don't know where, but you sent me there.
Celebrations are happening with her Brian's a very deep guy, you know, so he wanted to move beyond songs about summer and, and surfing. Just saying something like, God only knows what I'd be without you, and a rock and roll song, and then create this wonderful music that enables a listener 50 years later to put it on and to feel what, what they were feeling. That's great art. The way he layered and added different vocal parts created that wonderful celestial resonance overdub, over overdub, over overdub until on God Only Knows he ended up with seven tracks of vocal overdubs. And that's how come you hear this heavenly choir. Here's Paul McCartney. We loved the Beach Boys. And it, it was a bit of a competition across the pond. And when they did Pet Sounds, I played it to everyone. I said, oh, listen, listen to what they're doing here, you know. So we did Sergeant Pepper. Here's Ringo Starr. What happened to us was that while we were touring, we were regressing as musicians because the noise of the audience was louder than the band. I'm watching the feet, I'm watching their asses, I'm watching the bobbing heads. Ooh, oh, it's that part. To stay in some sort of time. Beatles producer George Martin. The Beatles achieved a quantum leap when they stopped touring. That gave us an opportunity which we hadn't had before. We no longer were under pressure to complete a song within a day or two days. We could spend as much time as we liked on it. The boundaries were being moved so far forward from the early mono days. Now we were asking for things like a symphony orchestra for a day in the life. You know, lunatics are taking over the asylum. Like many of John's songs, A Day in the Life began quite simply, based on the odd newspaper cutting. Paul had written a scrap of a song. Woke up, fell out of bed, you know the one. But when we laid down the track, Paul came up with the idea of a giant crescendo, a kind of immense musical orgasm.
Don't listen to the man next to you, I said to the orchestra. Make your own way up this sliding passage. And if you're playing the same note as your companion, you're playing the wrong one. Well, the orchestra hooted with laughter. All their lives they'd tried to play as one man, and it only took a few minutes for the Beatles to change all that. We were taking so long making Sergeant Pepper. I remember in one of the musical papers, they said, oh, the Beatles have dried up. And we were like, <coughs> no, we haven't. Here's Roger Waters from Pink Floyd. We were on the road driving to a gig in an old Zephyr 4 when Sergeant Pepper was played for the first time on the radio. And I remember we pulled off into a lay-by and sat there and listened to the whole thing from start to finish. And I remember we just looked at each other and went, hey, that's just... Suddenly, here was an album that was like a theatrical construction, but it was also rooted in songs that were about all our hopes and fears. And so, in, in that sense... That album opened Pandora's box for everybody. I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a story. Great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And my goodness, what we learned here, as always, in Our American Stories, is that intersection of competition, free markets, and intellectual property rights. And my goodness, without all three of those things... We are learning here. We wouldn't have the rich cultural and artistic tradition we have here in this great country. The story of the multi-track recording revolution here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and this next one, well, I think you're going to love it. Between 1896 and 1899, the stampede to Dawson City in the Yukon was the last great gold rush in history. Scurvy, dysentery, frostbite, starvation, and worst of all, failure, stalked all who dared to arrive in Dawson. Here to tell the story of one of the bravest and most successful entrepreneurs of the Klondike gold rush is Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. A U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA, McGrath has appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries and is a regular contributor here for us at Our American Stories. Here's McGrath. No woman figured more prominently on the Yukon and Alaskan frontiers than Belinda Mulroney. She gained international fame as the richest woman in the Klondike, and made and lost more than one fortune. She became a character in novels, and her dog the inspiration for Buck in The Call of the Wild. Linda Mulroney is born in Ireland in 1872. 
but she's reared partly in Pennsylvania when her father leaves Ireland to work in Scranton's coal mines. Here's Melanie Mayer, author of Staking Her Claim, The Life of Belinda Mulrooney, Klondike and Alaska Entrepreneur. Belinda's early years in Ireland have a big effect on her personality. She doesn't know her father, John, because he leaves for America shortly after she's born. Then, after two years of bonding with her mother, Mary, Mary disappears too. Belinda is left in the care of her loving grandparents on the farm in Ireland, and she does have some young, rough-and-tumble uncle playmates who help her learn to stand up for herself and not whine. But losing her mother is traumatic. Who can she really trust? Who can she really love? This will be an issue the rest of her life. As a child, she turns to her trusty donkey. She calls him her twin because he was born on the same day she was. When Belinda is almost 13 years old, her parents send for her to come to America. She says, leaving my uncles was bad. Leaving my grandmother was worse. But leaving the donkey, I threw my arms around his neck and I cried and cried for hours after I left him. Belinda leaves home in 1893 to open a small restaurant at the Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Before the exposition closes, she has accumulated $8,000 in profits, something like a quarter million in today's money. Mulroney's next stop is California, where she opens an ice cream parlor in San Francisco. The money is rolling in again, but a fire destroys the parlor and leaves her broke. She ships aboard a coastal steamer, city of Topeka, as a stewardess. She quickly gains a reputation for resourcefulness, business acumen, quick wit, and spirit. When a snobbish passenger condescendingly tells her to black his boots, she tells him if she sees his boots outside his cabin door, she will throw a pitcher of water on them. When a baby has to be delivered, she does the job while the ship's captain stands discreetly outside the cabin door and reads instructions from a medical text. The captain is so impressed by Mulrooney, he soon puts her in charge of purchasing supplies for the ship. For her extra duties, she receives a 10% commission on the cost of the supplies. But so canny is Belinda that the captain still reckons he gets a bargain. When news of the gold strike in the Klondike region of the Yukon reaches the Alaskan coast during the spring of 1897, Mulrooney has saved $5,000. She says goodbye to the captain and uses her money to buy all the cotton goods and hot water bottles she can find. With the help of hired hands, she packs her goods from the port of Dyee over a treacherous Chilkoot Pass and then floats on a raft hundreds of miles down the Yukon River to Dawson a mining camp that is fast becoming the great boomtown of the far north. Stepping ashore, Mulrooney throws the last coin in her pocket into the river and exclaims, never again will I need such small change. She's right. She sells her cotton goods and hot water bottles on Dawson's Main Street at a 600% profit. Here's Charlotte Gray, author of Gold Diggers, striking it rich in the Klondike. In her packing, she has these long aluminum tubes, and she won't tell anybody what's in them. 
she gets to Dawson. Within six weeks, she has a restaurant going. She is supplying men with outfits and she has a construction business going. Because what was in those aluminum tubes was incredibly wonderful silk underwear, lingerie, night dresses. And she knew that there were women in Dawson and she could sell this stuff to them at a huge profit. She opens a diner that's crowded with men daily and builds cabins that are sold before they are finished. Here's Melanie Mayer. Belinda reaches Dawson in the early summer of 1897 when she's 25 years old. She's been clever enough to get there before most of the stampede of gold seekers, but she knows they're coming. So she explains, I started buying up all the small boats and rafts that were arriving, hired a crew of young fellows who had nothing to do. They took apart the boats, salvaging the lumber and nails. I had them build cabins. I wasn't thinking of the money I'd make. We just had to shoulder those people. But of course, Belinda does make money from those cabins. And even old timers who've been mining in the Klondike for a while end up wanting a cabin for when they come into town. One old timer, Swiftwater Bill Gates, comes into Dawson with a load of gold. He's so eager to buy one of Belinda's cabins, he pays $6,500 for it. In today's money, that's like $117,000. Mulroney takes another gamble and opens a hotel and store in the heart of the mines, where El Dorado Creek pours into Bonanza Creek. Here again is Charlotte Gray. It's the city of whiskey, women, and gold. Everything was paid for in nuggets and gold flakes and every commercial establishment had a set of scales on its uh, counter. By the fall of 97, her Grand Forks Hotel is open. Prices for meal and lodging, and for whiskey and cigars, are the highest in the Yukon. No matter. Sourdoughs throw gold nuggets onto the Grand Forks bar. Mulroney is also in a location to get the first word on every new claim. By winter, She's an investor in several valuable mining properties. Putting a hotel 15 miles from Dawson at the junction of Bonanza and El Dorado Creeks, the Forks, isn't everybody's notion of a good idea. One old timer explains, Boys, there's a new woman up to the Forks with a bit of an Irish brogue and the tongue of a lawyer that's going to show us old mossbacks how to get rich. Hanged if she ain't got so much money to lose that she's going to build a two-story hotel bigger than any in Dawson, right up here on the creeks. But that's Belinda's genius. She can see possibilities where others see only muck. And she has great energy and self-confidence, even when only 25 years old. She builds the Grand Forks Hotel using construction skills she learned at the Chicago World's Fair five years earlier. And the Grand Forks Hotel is a huge success, not only as a hotel, but also as a restaurant, a bank, and a social center during the long, bitterly cold nights of the Yukon winter. And when we come back, we'll hear more of Belinda Mulrooney's story, The Richest Woman in the Klondike. And by the way, to hear more of Roger McGrath's work, go to ouramericannetwork.org. 
My goodness, he's done a dozen or so more of these terrific frontier stories. America not reimagined, but America's story simply retold. Our American Stories continues after these commercial messages. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Return to Roger McGrath and the story of Klondike Gold Strike Queen Belinda Mulrooney. When a boat loaded with supplies is wrecked on a sandbar in the Yukon River, Belinda goes in a partnership with Alex MacDonald to salvage the cargo. Big Alex stands over six foot seven and weighs nearly 300 pounds. He began his stay in the far north as a laborer and worked his way up to managing an Alaskan trading company. Through the acquisition of one mine after another, he is becoming a multimillionaire. He will soon be known as the King of the Klondike. Mulroney and MacDonald have a crew salvage the cargo, but MacDonald has the goods divided before Mulroney arrives. MacDonald takes crates full of foodstuffs for himself and leaves cases of whiskey and boxes of rubber boots for Mulroney. With winter approaching and starvation a real possibility, foodstuffs will be at a premium. You'll pay through the nose for this, Belinda tells Big Alex. Here again is Melanie Mayer, author of Staking Her Claim, The Life of Belinda Mulrooney, Klondike and Alaska Entrepreneur. You can understand Belinda's relation to Alex MacDonald if you think of her rough and tumble days with her uncles in Ireland. They like each other, but they're competitive, very competitive. Their so-called practical jokes are tricks where the jokester sets up the other person to be duped. But Belinda is determined to not be anybody's victim. Early in the spring of 1898, there is an unusual heat wave causing a sudden thaw. The rapidly melting snow and ice floods the Klondike country. Work in the mines is impossible without rubber boots. None other than Big Alex arrives at Mulroney's, pleading for rubber boots for his men. Belinda sells the boots all right, but makes him pay $30 a pair, the equivalent of $900 in today's money. Mulroney uses the profits to build the Fairview Hotel on Dawson's Main Street during the spring and summer. Nearly everything that goes into the Fairview has to be freighted from the Port of Skagway. Belinda makes the long and dangerous journey to the Alaskan coast to personally supervise the operation. She arrives there only to learn that Joe Brooks, the packer she has hired, has moved her goods just two miles up the trail before dumping the cargo when getting a better offer to transport whiskey for Bill McPhee. Joe Brooks is now about to learn what Big Alex learned. Don't cross. Belinda Mulrooney. Belinda marches to the Skagway Wars and hires the roughest men she can find. Legend says she instigates a fight among them and makes the last man standing her foreman. Whether that's true, she's soon leading 
these men up the trail. I catch up with Joe Brooks and his crew and beat him and his men into submission. Linda mounts Joe Brooks' own horse and leads the pack train over White Pass and down to boats waiting on the Yukon. The Fairview Hotel opens by the end of summer 1898. It's the most elegant hotel in the far north. It has 22 steam-heated rooms, electric lights, Turkish steam baths, and dining tables spread with fine linen and set with sterling silver and bone china. Cut-glass chandeliers hang from the ceilings, and an orchestra plays in the lobby. The Fairview is a cash cow from the day it opens. During its first 24 hours of operation, the bar alone takes in $6,000, something like $180,000 today. By the fall of 98, Belinda is known internationally. Scribner's Magazine calls her the richest woman of the Klondike. And others christen her the Queen of Grand Forks. She becomes a character in the novels of James Oliver Curwood and her dog, Nero, becomes immortalized as Buck in Jack London's The Call of the Wild. Here again is Charlotte Gray, author of Gold Diggers, striking it rich in the Klondike. Jack London went up there. He was an unpublished writer. His gold was all the stories he'd picked up in the bars. And two years after he got out of the North, he was the best-paid, best-known short story writer in North America. They're great stories, and so they really just light people's imagination up. Here's Melanie Mayer. Belinda St. Bernard Nero is just a big pup when she adopts him in Dawson, and he immediately captures her heart. He grows to be as big as she is, and Nero goes everywhere with Belinda, on the trails, into her cabins or hotel, onto boats. When there's snow on the ground, he proudly pulls her in a sleigh basket. He is her best friend. One day during the spring thaw, they're coming back to Dawson loaded with gold taken in at the Grand Forks Hotel. Belinda has a heavy backpack of it. Nero carries two bags of gold across his back like a saddle. They come to a place where they have to cross Bonanza Creek on a log, so Belinda goes first. But when Nero tries to follow, he slips and falls into the icy rushing water. His load of gold is so heavy he sinks to the bottom, he can't swim can only sometimes bob his head out of the freezing water for a gasp of air. Holding onto the tree with one hand, with the other she manages to grab Nero's collar on one of his bobs for air. But now they're in a dangerous fix. The tree is swaying. Belinda can't lift Nero out. He's too big and the gold makes him even heavier. All she can do is keep his head above the water and hope that she could keep hanging on to the tree. Eventually, some miners come along. One miner starts to climb out on the tree with Belinda in an attempt to reach Nero, but then the tree abruptly sags. Both Belinda and the miner are dumped into the water with Nero. Eventually, with everyone hauling and pushing, Nero, Belinda, and the helpful miner are rescued. Once his packs are off, Nero shakes off the excess water and is set to go again. Belinda, of course, is soaked, and with no dry clothes on hand, she has a very cold hike into Dawson. Yes, 
Nero is Belinda's best friend in the Klondike. Even decades later, in 1962, when interviewed on her 90th birthday, tears come to Belinda's eyes when she remembers her faithful, beloved Nero. In 1900, Belinda Mulroney marries Charles Eugene Charbonneau, purportedly a French count with estates in Europe. He is bold, dashing, and handsome, but French-Canadian rather than French, and no count of any kind. Before Belinda learns the truth, the couple honeymoons in Europe as the Count and Countess. Upon their return to the Klondike, Belinda becomes the manager of the Gold Run Mining Company. When she takes control of the company, it's bleeding red. Within 18 months, she has it making millions again. Her husband, meanwhile, is losing millions of Belinda's money in European business ventures. She divorces him in 1906. Through hard work and daring gambles, Belinda recovers much of her fortune. One of her new businesses is the Dome City Bank of Alaska. When an investor accuses one of Belinda's sisters of embezzling money from the bank, Belinda collars the man and horsewhips him until, in the words of the Fairbanks Times, he cried like a baby. Embarrassed, the man later claims Belinda had two men help her. I needed no help, she replies. Twenty friends, all old sourdoughs of Alaska, begged to be allowed to take the work off my hands. But it was a family affair, and I attended to it to the best of my ability. A blackmailer simply received a little Alaska justice. Sue Taylor, a woman who plays the role of Belinda Mulroney for visiting tourists at the Palace Grand Theater in Dawson City, shares what brought her to the area and explains why people are still drawn to Dawson to this very day. Belinda Mulroney was, she's a fabulous character and I feel very honored to play her. Every time they told her she couldn't do something, she went and did it even bigger and better than they said she couldn't do. And uh, that's the spirit that's still here. Oh, you bet. So I came up here and thought I'd see what happened and moved into a tent. Town was full of mud. Bought a brand new pair of rubber boots and that was my first day. Walked down to the Westminster Hotel. The boyfriend, he stayed outside. He was afraid to go in. I went inside and with my bright, shiny boots on and these big, hairy guys took one look at my boots, picked me up by my boots, shook me until I fell out of it. Then they poured the jug of beer into the gumboot and they passed it all around. And when it got to me, I had a drink too and, and I guess I was just accepted. I liked it fine. Uh, my boyfriend never did come in. He left town very quickly. But I stayed. It's just this place has a calling for people who just want to do, be themselves and be who they want to be, be who they are. Belinda Mulroney eventually leaves the far north and builds a grand estate near Yakima, Washington. It becomes known as the Charbonneau Castle and is today a historical landmark. She lives there until shortly before her death at the age of 95 in 1967, making her the last of the legends of the Klondike Gold Rush to die. And what a story. Great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. And thanks, as always, to Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And so much of his work, all of his work, can be heard at Our American Network. Org. Also, a special thanks to Melanie Meyer, author of Staking Her Claim, The Life of Belinda Mulrooney. And we rely on so many different historians and experts to do our storytelling. And thanks to all of you for helping 
Belinda Mulroney's story, The Richest Woman in the Klondike, here on Our American Story. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series. And always, it's sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And Job Creators is hard at work trying to promote policies that help and aid Main Street businesses across this country. Big businesses are well represented in Washington, D.C., and often they're trying to thwart the efforts of small ones. And big versus small is a big theme on this show, as is up versus down. And always, we're fighting for the little guy and for those small business owners across this country on Main Streets trying to turn their little businesses into bigger ones. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone that you likely know, my pillow founder, Mike Lindell. But you likely don't know his full and remarkable story. People always say, how ironic, you were a cocaine addict and you invented something to sleep. In 2008, um, my dealers, they did an intervention on me. I get downtown Minneapolis and all three of them are in the room. I go, what are you guys doing here? Now I'm in a worst part of Minneapolis in in the one guy's apartment, Joe's second apartment. I said, you guys know each other? I'm up for 14 days or, you know, they said it was 19, it's 14. And uh, the one guy says, he goes, he goes, what am I here for? And he goes, he goes, well, Mike's been up 19 days and we're shutting him off. And, and uh, I said, I've only been up 14. And he says, you've been with us the whole time. You know, they all, they all you know, knew I hadn't slept. And the one guy leaves, he says, he ain't getting nothing from any of my people or me. And he was just disgusted and left. And they, before he left, though, he goes, you made a promise to us. Because all the time when I'd be doing drugs and stuff, I would always promise them this is a platform that's going to help. When I quit, I'm going to come back and, they, and help everyone, you know, get out of this horrific addiction and everything. There were many times I was in crack houses or bars, whatever, and I would talk about Revelation, which I read about when I was ever in jail. You know, every time I was in jail, I'd read the Bible. About the only time I would, you know. And so I'm telling these guys, well, they would quit that day, the next day. Like 28 people quit all through my life. I'm going, but what did I say? And they go, I don't know, but it sure made sense. Well, normally you would think it's a hypocrite. Yeah, this is really bad. Give me another line, you know. And and they would they would listen. But all that time, it was me telling them, trying to convince myself, you know trying to convince myself whether it would be Jesus or whether it would be to get off the drugs. It was me trying to convince myself. So anyway, these guys are in the middle of this intervention thing. And the one guy kicks the other guy, Joe, out of his own apartment. And he sits there in the chair next to me, says, how much you have left? And I had, I don't know, enough to probably uh, last an hour or so. And he sits there and, I, and now I, I run out and I'm scraping the pipe. Anybody that's on crack out there, you're scraping the residue out of the pipe and re-smoking it and trying to, then you're looking on the ground all over the carpet trying to find pieces you may have dropped over the last few days. And it's horrific. And then uh, anyway, I look over and he's asleep. So I head on down to the streets. I'm the only white guy down there. I'm, and they're going, you ain't getting nothing from me. You're not getting nothing from me. And I mean, all these things they're saying, I'm going, how do they know it's me? 
you know, my buddy Joe, that he just he goes, yeah, he goes, Mike didn't realize we told him, you know, if a if a crazy white guy comes down with a mustache, you know. <laughs> so Joe just told this story the other day, and he because he works for now he's a Christian, he works for my company, and he, so anyway, I get back to the room, and I defeated, and I get in there, and and uh, he's sitting in the chair, and he says, uh, how'd that work out for you? And I said. I was so mad, and I said, you know, it was like 2:30 in the morning, 3 in the morning, and he goes, he goes, give me your phone. He says, you're gonna take, you're gonna take this picture. You told us you're gonna write a book. You're gonna need this for your book. It's like you think of someone on 14 days in a mugshot or whatever, but it times that by five, you know. Mike believes that his drug addiction was all because of his parents' divorce. 100%, 100%. Everything in childhood, everything in childhood, trauma, everything affects it, manifests to addictions, manifests to personality disorders, a divorce, but a divorce, a fatherlessness, it affects everybody. This was not known back then. I mean, it was very rare, you know. My mom and dad divorced when I was seven. I was nine days into second grade, brought to a new school. Um, I was the oldest child, so I was babysitting at seven. It was uh, to fit into the new school. I, you know, I did a lot of crazy things to, you know, climbing out a moving bus window to show off. And uh, I worked at a drive-in the movie theater, and the drive-in movie theater was voted the best job to have in the 1970s. One time I remember climbing up the back of the screen and on these little rungs, and me and my buddy that worked there were gonna moon the crowd. And we stand up there, we're 160 feet off the ground, and I'm afraid of heights, we hang onto the screen, and now I couldn't get back up, and I'm gonna fall to my death, and my, and my clothes fall off, my pants fall off. So he's helping me trying to get back up, and he gets me back up, and I just petrified climbing back down. Of course, the police were waiting at the bottom, and they're going, and this is the 1970s, they're going, he goes, uh, my manager's there, he goes, these guys work here. He goes, oh, this, you know, and the guy, they go, you get back out there, don't do that again and get your clothes. I mean, that was it. But you look back now, I'm going, you know, all those people watching, he goes, is that part of the movie, you know? And uh, I did a lot of different things like that. And I know a lot of it was uh, was out of boredom, you know, um, just things to do. I wanted, you know, just excitement, even though, I, even though I'd get myself into trouble, it was exciting and it was challenging getting out of trouble, you know? <laughs> Mike went on to college, although he didn't know why. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I talked about maybe being a lawyer, you know, and all these different things, but I didn't know what I wanted to be, and it was like, that was the thing to do, go to college. And I had, I, I didn't go to class. I went to class twice. I was working two jobs. My roommate's going, uh, what are you even here for? And I would just go take the test and still get seized at not even doing anything. And that was the year of the uh, Iranian uh, crisis, the hostage crisis. And as soon as that happened, I used it as an excuse. I'm out of here. The you know, world's coming to an end or whatever. I'm, I'm going to go have fun while he's gone, you know. I just thought it was a waste of time. I mean, I'm going, it's a repeat of high school, these things. And my whole thought process, why do you have to go four years of this um, general college and then to be a, a doctor or a lawyer or whatever you want to be? And that bothered me. I'm not going to sit here and waste my time. That's the way I thought. So he put his attention elsewhere. Working at the grocery store, I got heavy into illegal sports betting. And I uh, was betting with some very bad people on sports, and I ended up owing them a lot of money. And they came to my trailer, 
and left a note. He said, if you don't pay by tonight, things are gonna get very physical. That night I went to work at the grocery store and I told my manager, I said, Lenny, I said, if, if anybody comes through the door here and looks like they might be in the mafia or whatever, looks like he's, I said, so will you say Mike telephone line three? We only had two telephone lines. I wasn't even there three minutes. And I said, and I hear, Mike, telephone line three, and out the back door I went, and I went and got their money the next morning and paid them. Little things like that, you know? <laughs> and more on this remarkable story, Mike Lindell's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We return to our American Dreamers series, this time Mike Lindell. And we return at this point. He's dropped out of college. He's working at a grocery store and for the owner's son, who was his manager. I had been uh, fired. It was union. I'd been fired. I don't know how many times the union got my job back or, or his dad did. And uh, it would always be over stuff that uh, I didn't like his rules. And he goes, if you don't like it, you know, get your own company someday and make your own rules. And there were so many things I didn't like as an employee back then. And I've, I've changed a lot of that now to my own company where to make things better. And he, he said the, the final the thing he did that where he finally fired me, I was, I was on five different schedules. And one of them I knew I was probably on, but I didn't want to look at it because I was seeing my cousin that I hadn't seen in years. <laughs> And uh, anyway, the next day I come in and he's working to me. He says, you've been suspended indefinitely. And I said, I don't, what does that mean? I, I like, you, like, you know, I didn't realize that you're done, you know. I didn't know what the words meant. And uh, so I said, yeah, we'll see about this. So I went to his dad and he, say, he looked at me. He says, Mike, I'm not, I'm not getting behind you this time. He says, you're destined for bigger things. He says, you're going to look back someday and see this was meant to be. And he says, you can't be a lifer here, even though, and, and they had both told me I'm one of their best employees, but I just had problems. And uh, I never forgot them words. I looked back and it wasn't too long looking back going, well, you know, wow, that had to happen. Or I might still have been there for years later, you know. But it would take more than one incident to really kick in Mike living a real life my fifth year reunion with my class. Everyone's now is out of the college. They get these amazing jobs. They've started families or they've kept with the same company since high school. So in my mind, they were way ahead of me. And it was very, it was bothering me inside. And then it was just uh, going, wow, everybody's ahead of me. And I'm doing stuff to show off. And I'm, you know, I got into, you know, I was a card counter. Then I took a card counting class, professional card counting. But I hadn't even started it yet or whatever. I just threw it at the class. So I'm, I'm bragging it at the reunion about skydiving with a parachute not opening and my car accidents and my you know card counter things that they've never seen or the mafia coming after me you know so I'm blowing their minds and so we don't get on the topic of uh, yeah how you doing for work how you doing uh, you know what are you doing Mike how many kids you got how many you know how's your family you know I'm just completely putting up this wall you know for these other things and so they're all thinking I'm nuts basically but it was a very it was that starting there it was a very much a driver and it was like there was a lot of now it started to be shame you know I'm going you know this is this is not who I can be then then I prayed I said you know God all I want is to meet the right woman and have you know kids and and uh, you know be the the white picket fence so to speak and then God brought that all to me 
and handed it to me on a silver platter. Until Mike jeopardized his answered prayer. By then I was a very functioning cocaine addict too. I look back and I'm going, oh, it was perfect. Well, no, there was a lot of dysfunction, even though it's hard to, for the addiction to, to hide it all the time. The kids didn't even know then. That's how good I was. I mean, it was a lot of work hiding the, the cocaine and then, the, and then crack. The kids didn't know, okay? Even like neighbors, let's give our kids, or send our kids over there because we were the fun, you know, this is back in the, you know, when they were younger and was with cocaine. But then when the crack came on, that took us down fast when the cocaine turned into crack. And and the kids, my daughter at that time, when we, we got right when it all kind of blew up on us, she says, we're very dysfunctional family. I go, I don't know what that means, but don't ever say that again. We're not dysfunctional. It's a swear word. What do you mean? What? It sounded just horrible. I didn't know what it really, really meant, you know. And, uh, <laughs> so that don't sound good. But I lost it all. You know, eventually lost it all. And in the midst of a lot of this dysfunction, Mike was already running my pillow. I tried every pill. Even when I was 16 years old, I bought one of my first paychecks, went to buy a pillow at that grocery store I worked at. This teenager spent $70 on a pillow. That would be $287 in today's money for a pillow. So I spent the most expensive pillow thinking it would be the best. It was a down pillow and it was the worst because they, you know, I know now they just sell us air. I mean, I mean, how can that be? It feels good, down it goes, but I couldn't return it. That I do remember. They would not let me return that pillow. But then throughout my life, I'm trying different pillows and I always had problems with sleep and wake up in the morning with headache, neck ache. But mostly these sleep interruptions are not being able to get to sleep right away. So in, in 2004, I had a very clear dream of the name, my pillow, and I wrote my pillow all over the house and, and connecting the Y and the P and, and you know, these logos and I'm going, that sounds really corny, you know, um, but I go, well, where's my pillow? You know, I mean, if you, it's hard for you to think back now because there's my everything and it was because of my pillow got big, everybody took up the my's, but my daughter came upstairs and there was, she looked and there were pieces of paper written all over and Lizzie says, uh, she gets a glass of water, she, I don't know, she's 11 years old maybe, and she said, what are you doing, Dad? And I go, I go, I'm going to invent this pillow. And, I, and now you realize I hadn't even got the, you know, what, what it's going to be made of or what it's going to do. It's going to be the best thing ever. I've seen it, and, and this is going to be called my pillow. And she looks at all these pieces of paper. She goes, that's really random, Dad. And she went back downstairs. Well, then the kids said to their mother at the time, when's dad going to get over this pillow thing? And uh, he says, oh, it's just a phase. It'll be, it'll be over. And I wasn't, at that time, I wasn't doing anything. I'd sold my I'd little bar and restaurant. So I, my total focus was on this pillow now. Well, then I still had to figure out the material. So we tried over 94 different kinds of foams and fills to put in there. My one son, Darren, and I, who's now managing 1,100 or 1,200 employees of the manufacturing, that's what he does now. But he's like nine or 10 years old and every day he'd get home from school and we'd try different kinds of stuff on the deck and the foam would fly all over the neighborhood and we tried little machines to get to work. And finally we get it and it worked. Once we had the pillows all made, we had mortgaged our house, everything, and we had no money left, but we had like 300 pillows. And I went into the first pillow. I walked into a, it was a bed, bath, and beyond. I'll just say the name. In Bloomington, Minnesota, I go in there. I said, 
I got the best pillow ever. I said, this pillow is going to change, you know, change. You're going to sell more of this than anything. It helps this, helps you sleep, blah, blah, blah. And where, where's your buyer? Who's your buyer? Where's the manager? And he looks at me, he goes, you need to leave. And I'm going, the guy just had all this passion, you know? And I'm going, what do you mean I need to leave? I said, I want to talk to your buyer. And I learned right away. And I started calling on other stores and everybody, it was the same shutout. My brother-in-law's brother said, Mike, why don't you do a kiosk? And I said, what's that? How do you spell kiosk? And then we did this kiosk, and I had a little sign, a stencil, where I put on family owned and operate. I colored in the, the stencil. And the other one I put, chiropractor recommended. And she goes, his then wife. We can't have this. She goes, someone can sue us. I said, I gave one to a chiropractor, our friend, you know, and he loves it, you know. But it was way far, you know, here's a mall, and here's this in a mall. It just was almost too corny, you know what I mean? Almost too real. But I did, we did sell about 80 pillows. And the one day, obviously we lost, uh, I don't know, like $15,000 because it's very expensive to have a kiosk on November and December. And, but one guy, he came up and he said, hey, you have a, do you have a card? And I go, I don't have business cards. I, I go, oh, I'm all out. I sit here and I gave him my number. And in January of that year, now kiosk was almost, you know, a complete failure basically. I borrowed money from my ex-bookie to buy Christmas presents that year. And by the way, the reason he was my ex-bookie, he said, if you quit gambling, I'll borrow you money. I mean, that, I mean that's, uh, you know, he cared. <laughs> so this guy called me in January and he says, are you the guy that invented this pillow? The one guy I'd gave my phone number to. And I go, yeah. And he goes, this pillow changed my life. He says, it is a miracle. And he was all about that. I'm going, okay. And, he, and I'm excited hearing his, you know, not worrying about where I am at, that this is, I'm going, I was just so happy for him that it helped him. And he goes, I run the Minneapolis Home and Garden Show. Would you like a spot in there? And I go, and, I, and I'm thinking to myself right away, well, the kiosk didn't work. And I'm going, I go, well, maybe there's more people or something, you know, and I'm going, sure. Well, I didn't have money in, in uh, so of course I had to borrow money to get into there. But then um, I go into that home and garden show, but what I did is I got behind that booth. I could sell. And once I got behind, it was whew, it was like, wow. And as I'm seeing people, they would literally come back the next day. So many people after that first day going, this is a miracle. And the same thing the guy said. Now I'm feeding off this passion and I'm just, it was like amazing where that I realized I could sell and I could sell and help people. And I sold out that four days, sold out. I was, and I'm going, wow, I can, this is where I'm gonna be. I can support my family in spite of everybody turning me down. So I started doing home shows and fairs and got in the Minnesota State Fair. We blew it out of the park, we're still there. And as they say, the rest is history. But that's a tad bit blase for this story. There were more trials to come. And the story of Mike Lindell, an American Dreamer's story, as good as any we've done. Where do you hear the rest of the story? Here on Our American Stories.
And we return to the life story of my pillow founder, Mike Lindell. I had this mask on, and probably from from the divorce from childhood. I always had to have, that's when I got a hold of cocaine. It was so easy. Everything I did, I had to be on cocaine to be able to talk to people and be able to have my confidence because I have this unworthiness inside of me that a lot of people have from, you know, from different things that have happened. It's an unworthiness. And now when I quit all my drugs and everything, that was, it's been quite a journey to where now, I mean, if you'd have told me I would be speaking in front of people or doing a commercial, I would have said, there is no way. In fact, I did a little human interest story once at a local station. I was still on drugs at the time. It was 2005 or six. And this little public access station in Minneapolis, I came down there and she goes, uh, um, hey, this uh, host he was going on, she says, you want to go on his show right now? I want you, I go, I'm not going on the show. And she goes, and she goes, no, I want you just the way you are at the home shows. And I said, well, I'll come back in an hour because I want to go get my drugs, right? So, and she goes, no, go on right now. So she talks me into going on. Now, I was so petrified. Anybody that knew me said, you didn't have drugs, did you? And anybody that didn't know me said, what, is he on drugs? You know what I mean? Because I was so, like, I was all over the, I've never been so nervous. I just couldn't even talk. And I never forgot that. And I'm going, if you'd have told me then, oh, you don't need all this, and you're going to be an amazing, you know, speaker and all this stuff. I'm going, okay, that ain't going to (laughs) happen. And yet, there was one place in Mike's life where he didn't need the drugs. Where he was, home. Interesting with the home shows, um, you know, I I noticed one thing when I was behind that table and people came up, they had a reason for me to talk to them. Now, if I left behind the booth, I didn't have to have drugs. That was the only, it was like a phenomenon. Now, if I went out to smoke cigarettes outside the door and there's three people there, I wouldn't even go near them. I'd have to, because I wouldn't want to talk to them. You follow me? I wouldn't want to talk to them. So it'd be, when I was behind that, behind that table, talking about my pillow, I was in a, it was like a, you know, this amazing new thing where I could talk to people. And so I didn't need that. But obviously if I had cocaine, it would be, it would be you know, the same. But what I noticed, I could have the same passion with, with the cocaine or without, only in one spot behind that booth. Once I left that booth, I mean, it's like walking into another world. I'd walk, if I'm in, the, I'm, and I have to talk to you and you're the next booth over, and we're going to talk about the weather, it's not happening. I'm climbing up. I'm avoiding I'm going, hey, yeah, we'll talk to you later. I didn't know what to say. I was very socially stunted in that respect, where I probably have the social skills of a 12-year-old. The home shows were the one place in Mike's life that was certain. It was his world, his pillow. Not the uncertain world outside those doors where he was damaged by his parents, the drugs, and an unknown future. The shows were the place where he could feel that he was a positive force in this world. For me, I didn't have money. It didn't matter if I had money. I would, I had a skill. I could go out and get money. If I borrowed money, I would pay you back double because I couldn't, I couldn't accept anything from anybody. I have another wound where I don't accept. I'm a giver, but I can't accept, which I've worked on. You know, I can't accept if we were gonna, if we were gonna go to lunch. Guess what? I'd have a hard time you buying me lunch. That's the way you know I am, and that's a wound. That's actually, it's not a healthy thing either. It's to be able to accept 
is also uh, just as good as blessing someone. But I couldn't accept, especially back then. If you and I were doing drugs, I'm not taking some of your drugs, you're taking mine, you know. But to be able to be in that pillow show and to just see people coming up, I just felt like God gave me the idea for the pillow in the first place. I'm going, wow. I wouldn't get depressed because of that. It was like a constant feed of people going, this is amazing. You know, I had this with my neck and this and I'm getting sleep now. I knew it was such a divine solution. I could have sat and just helped people forever and never got, I wasn't thinking like, okay, I'm gonna make millions of dollars. My thought was always, I'm gonna help millions of people. There's a difference. But to reach his fullest potential in helping people, there was just one person that he had to help first himself. It was March of 2008 when he was brought to that intervention by the three biggest drug dealers of Minneapolis of all people. That might have woken some people up, but not Mike yet. His Christian faith was always there, but it floated in and out of his heart. He grew up in a non-denominational Christian church and never had a real relationship with Christ. An interesting thing happened a week after that um, little intervention. I'm sitting all by myself at this place I was living, and I get a phone call. Now, remember, I, we talked about that little public access station. And that lady was a nice Christian lady. She would air it just every now and then, you know. And I would get phone calls of people wanting to buy pillows then, you know. So it was helping me out. And, and uh, well, that night, it's about 9.30 at night, and the phone rings. And I answer, and, and I'm up doing, you know, of course, I'm still up for probably two, three days. And she says, you know, I, I'm, are you the guy I've seen on Channel 6? And uh, I said, yeah. She says, well, she says, God, God, I prayed, and God told me to call you and say what you're doing is so important to the kingdom. Can we pray about it? And, we, and I said, okay, so we're praying. About a half hour goes by, and she goes, I say, you know, goodbye. And I still have her name, by the way, for this, you know, the proof that this happened. About another hour goes by, another lady calls up. And this never had happened, okay? I really got one call to buy a pillow. And she calls up, she says, are you the guy seen on Channel 6 that invented this pillow? And I said, yeah. She goes, well, I haven't bought one, in, but she said, um, I was gonna call and see if it's okay to pray with you. She said, and what you're doing is so important to, the, to God. And I'm going, okay. And so we pray for about an hour. That was a long one. And we prayed, and I talked right now. You know, I'm doing lines of cocaine. I wanted someone to talk to anyway, you know. And um, now three in the morning, this guy calls up, same night. And he calls up and he answers and he goes, I want to get, you the guy on TV? And he was mad. And I go, yeah. He goes, I goes, let me get something clear here. I don't believe in God, but I keep getting this dream that I'm supposed to call you and tell you what you're doing is important to God. And he slams the phone down, very upset. Now about seven in the morning, the phone rings and, uh, and I get on there, I go, you don't want to buy a pillow, you want to pray. And she goes, well, how did you know? And I'm going, it seems to be the thing tonight, you know? And, and uh, she ended up buying a pillow though too, but, but we, so we prayed. So that day I'm going, wow, you know, and I knew that this platform, then my sister called me up a week later. She says, you got to quit standing in front of semis and think that God's going to pick someone else for this. He, he chose you for some, for a big calling. My sister is telling me this and I'm going, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I heard that last week, you know. <laughs> and, she, and she goes, you have a calling. And, this, and she said, this window's going to close and God's going to choose someone else. And you're, and, but then I'm kind of thinking, well, if I'm chosen for this, I can surely wait, you know. 
So I procrastinated through the year. And when, when we talk about bottom, for me, I wouldn't really have a money bottom because I've survived. You know, addicts are survivors. Any addicts that are out there, addictions are so, there's a lot of work. They're so hard to maintain them, to hide your addiction, to get enough to make money, to get your drugs. I mean, there's just so, it's a lot of work. And most addicts are very smart. They're going to get what they want. And when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this remarkable story. And I just love the line that I I never got into this thing to make millions out of it, Mike Lindell said. I thought, I'm going to help millions of people. And that's a big difference, he said. And it is. And of course, we've heard that from so many of our American dreamers. And that's where money comes from in this great country. When you help other people, they pay you for the service voluntarily. And then, of course, the faith element of this story is equally impressive, maybe even more. And you're going to hear the rest of this story, and it just keeps getting better, folks. Our American Dreamers segment, Mike Lindell's story, My Pillow's story, here on Our American Stories. Now let's return to the final portion of our American Dreamers series, Mike Lindell's story, the founder of MyPillow. It would get to December of 2008, and an interesting thing happened. My friend that had quit for three years, his name is Dick, and he was the first guy I ever did cocaine with in 1984. But he had been free of everything and had found Jesus for three years, and I hadn't seen him for a year. Okay. He used to be one of my dealers, all right? And now he's the only guy on the planet. You know, I've been to treatment centers and stuff through my life for different things, gambling, uh, drugs, alcohol, to get my license back. And he's the only one that could have came there where I could ask him questions where I would respect the answer because he's been there. Well, anyway, here comes Dick, and he walks in the door. He says, I said, Dick, what are you doing here? He says, God sent me out here. He says, what's going on? And I'm going, well, as long as you're here, I got a few questions for you. One of the first things I asked him is, is it boring? And that was a big question on addicts because a lot of addicts think with addictions, it's, it's because you're bored. It's not, you're hiding pain. You're hiding pain and you're doing it, you know, you're all that, whatever you're doing on the, for the high, it's just masking the pain. But so I was very concerned about, is it boring? Then he left, that was in December of 08. Now, on January 16, 2009, I sat there and I'm going, okay, it was just like they used to have black and white TVs. When you turned them off, there'd be that little tiny dot and you turned it back on before that dot went out, right? And, and in my mind, I just knew that if I waited one more day, I, someone else would be chosen. And at the same time, I thought, you know what? This is gonna help so many people because this is gonna be 
God's going to show the best comeback or the best with God, all things are possible ever. This story, this story is going to be an amazing story. I actually thought that the day I quit. And so I prayed. I said, God, I want to wake up in the morning and free me from all these addictions. I don't ever want to feel them that, you know, the desire, free me from the desire. And uh, I said, then I'm all yours. I'll do this platform. That was my thing. So I'll do this, you know, whatever you want me to do. So I wake up in the morning and it's gone. It was a peace. It was like, wow. I didn't have any money. I told my friends and family, let's all pool our money and do this infomercial dream I had. If nobody's going to take my pillow, let's bring it right to the people. And I didn't know that infomercials don't work. It's just to get in box stores. You don't make money on the front end. But I, nobody told me that. It's like an old Gilligan's Island episode. When Gilligan's up flying and the skipper goes, Gilligan, get down here. You can't fly. And Gilligan says, I can't. And he crashed to the ground. He was flying just fine until somebody told him he couldn't do it. Well, nobody told me I couldn't make this infomercial and couldn't make it, you know, amazing. In my head, I'm going, this is going to be the biggest ever. I'm telling my friends and family. Mike says that in a dream, there were specific numbers about this hypothetical infomercial success that came to him. I'm going to go to a million dollars a week or two million overnight. A wild success for something that pretty much was at nothing. But here we go. And someone introduced him to a so-called expert. I said, I have this dream in this infomercial with just a real audience. And I didn't want to be in I didn't want to be in TV. I said, maybe somebody do it like we do at home shows. You know, just make it real. And she goes, no, you need an actor. And she says, then they wrote a script. The phones are lighting up like Christmas trees. I wanted to throw up. I said, this is not what I want. And she goes, I'm a professional and all this. But now the money kept going down. Almost all the money we had got from my friends and family that everyone put their life and just believe in me was almost, we were running out. We didn't even have anything. So divine appointment, I met this other guy. So he's going to do this infomercial. Well, it turned out I was going to do it because he had seen so much passion. This guy says, you need to do it. Then all of a sudden they had wrote this script and I went to read it. They had this big professional guy had come in and he's sitting there and he's listening to me read off this script and then her and he goes, this is the worst disaster ever. This guy is terrible. Okay, being me, you know, this is, it's, they didn't know what to do. So they, they decided they would go with no teleprompter. That Mike would try ad-libbing the whole infomercial. It will also become a hard surface, and it's no good. <laughs> what about this one? This one here is Ruined America. Um, oh so we go in there to film it, and I was so scared. But once again, I got behind that counter, and it was like a shield between me and the audience where I come my comfort zone. And I just went naturally or whatever. Now on October 7, 2011, I'm living in my sister's basement and, and this aired at three in the morning and all of a sudden this half hour infomercial comes on and I'm going, wow. I'm watching myself, you know, usually I would get so uncomfortable, but I'm going, I hadn't seen it yet. I had not seen it. I had not, I couldn't watch it. So this is the first time I watched it and it was surreal. And it wasn't like, ooh, I'm on TV. It was like, wow, this is like divine you set that you get exactly what you need for your individual neck support yep. okay you can turn this any way you want you can make little balloon animals out if you want okay it's gonna hold it takes six pounds of pressure to hold that it was just all natural that it was like 
it was real. It was what I wanted. I didn't want it to be a cookie cutter, you know, infomercial. And we exploded. We went from five employees to 500 in 40 days. We were hiring people as fast as we could. We were working out of a little schoolhouse. We made our own call center because I, I had trained a call center in Connecticut. I had trained them because I take customer service so seriously. I called on the second day. I said, yeah, what's in that pillow? The guy goes, I don't know, Google it. I fired him on the spot. I was so upset. And, and we made our own call center in a little schoolhouse. We put everybody, my friends, everybody came in and we took phones through the night. And I look back now and I say, everybody got their pillows in time for Christmas. I mean, we, we were making them, hiring people, teaching them how to sew. Can you sew? Yeah, here. They go, Mike, you need to be CEO. I go, that sounds horrible. Don't they just take money? And then, I, and then I go, we need an HR department. I go, that really sounds bad. I mean, all these things, I just wanted to make pillows, you know? And we took in millions of dollars over the next six months. But the experts continued to tell him that his way was stupid. They're going, did you make this ad? This is, this is terrible. Did you write this yourself? We can do so much better, blah, blah, blah. And uh, now it's the number one ad in history. I look it up. I'll put it up against any ad ever. Mike's ad-libbed infomercials that the American people have responded to because he's genuine and real are now selling over 75,000 MyPillow products a day. And people said, oh, Mike, you can't make a pillow here in the United States. You got to make it overseas. I said, no, you're never going to get a patent on a pillow. And all these naysayers, and I fought every single thing. It was a constant fight. And the infomercial finally fatigued. And when it did fatigue, in the summer of 14, I thought, you know, it's over. I mean, it was just scary. We were, we were within two days of going under. Uh, during that time, and I, I had fell away from God. I didn't, uh, I mean, I was like, when I took in all that money, I'm going, wow, this is, you know, I kind of, kind of forgot about the platform that he had given me and everything started to just dry up, okay? And in the summer of 14, I met Kendra. And I noticed something with her that she had that I didn't have. It was, it was like this relationship with Jesus. And I wanted that. I really wanted that relationship or whatever she had. And on February 18th, 2017 is when Jesus showed up and I had this personal relationship now. I'm going, wow, now I have what Kendra has. Now I'm doing speaking all over the country. I have the same passion for the pillow as now I have for Jesus. And that's powerful. Why did the relationship finally come on this particular day? Operation Restored Warrior is actually for veterans. You go there, it's a five-day thing where you're, uh, you give your life to Jesus. And, you know, I was invited, like, you know, I'm not a veteran. And I'm going, why? But they all prayed and we're going to invite, we want, you know, God told them that we want Mike Lindell to come to this. And here I'm there, I'm going, I'm not, what am I doing here with these veterans? You know, these guys have stories that are 10 times worse than any story I have or any wounds. The wounds I heard there in their heart and Jesus showed up. I mean, I can't even tell you, it was the most divine. I'm walking out of there, I'm going, wow, this is what I was missing. This personal relationship where you're walking with them instead of just, you know, okay, I'm gonna go to church and believe in God. And you know, before all those times now I look back, 
all these chapters and all these things of my life, for me, it took all these things because I'm going, this doesn't happen unless it's of God. That the troubled son of divorced parents, the crack addict, the twice divorced father, the near bankruptcies, all of these trials and tribulations must have happened for a reason. That the odds of someone with this story selling 75,000 pillow products a day, meeting with the President of the United States in the White House, and sharing his Christian faith before a crowd of over 60,000 in an NFL stadium after a life of fearing public speaking, this could have only happened for one reason and by one man. God's blessed me with this company. That ain't Mike Lindell. And what a great story about entrepreneurship and faith molded into one. Our American Dreamer series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. We've done dozens of these American Dreamer series. This may be one of the best. Mike Lindell's story, my pillow story, here on Our American Stories. 